What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the Two Feet on the Ground Gravity Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Chris. Thank you for choosing to tune in today. Hey, folks, we're we're continuing on this journey, trying to help you unpack life, trying to help you identify your foundations so that you can maintain perspective in a world full of noise and chaos. I hope that's what we're doing here. Uh, I, I can tell you that as I listen to these guests uh, just tell us their story and equip us with tools to live life, it's helping me. It's causing me to to pause and to reflect. So that's the goal here. Folks, I'm excited about today's guest, mental health professional, Phoebe Mulligan. She is an absolutely remarkable human being, remarkable speaker. I've heard her talk uh, in a couple different settings, and she just has a gift. In particular, she has a gift to connect with first responders, military, those type of folks. She's able to just to cut through all the BS and really talk their language without trying to pretend that she's that she's one of them. But she's clearly been there and done that in her work to where she really has a lot of authority. At least uh, I consider her part of the tribe. So I'm just going to let the, the interview happen here in a second because I, I don't think there's a whole lot more for me to say to set this up. But before, as always, I want to talk about Service Peace Warriors. Service Peace Warriors is a 501c nonprofit that's dedicated to helping our nation's heroes. That's right, the veterans that are returning from war with either PTSD or other injuries. Service Peace Warriors has their back. They're raising all the funds to train up service animals, to train up the veteran, and to partner them together. However, you've heard me say it, Service Peace Warriors took it a step further. They wanted to help first responders as well. So they started the for-profit Maddox Dog Training Academy, and they used the proceeds for Maddox to further fund Service Peace Warriors and then also to equip first responders with service animals too. If you haven't looked at them yet, please check them out, servicepeacewarriors.org. Folks, with that, let's get into this interview with Phoebe Mulligan. Phoebe Mulligan, welcome to the Gravity Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for joining me here, carving out some of your time to bring your expertise to to my listeners. Hey, some folks, you know, if they're from the Pacific Northwest, especially from the west side of the state, they've, they've probably heard of you, but other listeners, non-law enforcement, not from Washington State, haven't. Can you just go ahead and give us an introduction of who you are and what your background is? Sure. Um so, like you said, my name is Phoebe Mulligan. Um, I've been a trauma therapist in Cruz County uh, for the last 16 years. And the the first whole part of my career was mostly in child abuse. And so I worked on a lot of the um, kind of like the felony level child abuse cases. And then uh, in 2018, um, I started my own business and was asked to be uh, the mental health professional with um, one of the police departments around here. And uh, and then it just sort of snowballed from there. And so uh, in the last five years, um, I think I have 10 police departments that I'm the MHP for. Um, and I also get the chance to train all of the new folks who are coming out of the academy on officer wellness. And I think the for whatever reason, like the fit within departments seems to be kind of finally taking hold around mental health um, and I always tell people if I decided I wanted to do this 10 years ago, there probably wouldn't have been any space for it just because it seems like the transition 
<clears throat> around um, valuing mental health and officer wellness seems to have really only happened over the last five or six years. So really, I timed my career perfectly, I think. <laughs> yeah. Why Why officers? I mean, you right now, from all my friends that are mental health professionals, it doesn't matter who your target audience is. Uh, everyone's booked out six months. So you could have you could have had your business with any demographic of the community. Why did you pick law enforcement officers? I think a couple reasons. One is is a general rule, and I think this is true probably about everybody's work that you have to pick a population to work with that you genuinely are interested in and care about the outcome. Because if you're working with groups of people that you don't really care about, it's not it, it'll be short lived. But I think that when I look at the things that law enforcement officers face on a pretty regular basis, and I also, I should mention, I also work with firefighters as well, that I think there's this combination of um, both primary trauma, which is the stuff that we would typically think about as traumatic, you know, physical fights, sexual assaults, fear for your life, uh, car accidents, things like that, that people face. But then on top of that, you also have the secondary trauma piece of just knowing about all the bad things that happen to people and the ways that people suffer. And I think I watched that combination of things along sometimes with the culture kind of take its toll on people. And I've said pretty regularly that I don't believe that people should be the collateral damage of a career spent helping folks who are suffering. And so for that reason, it was just a good fit. I was also married to a police officer for about 10 years. And uh, we're not married anymore, but I think in some ways, like also working with law enforcement um, gave me a lot of empathy for what his experience probably was. Um, and, mm. You know, 10 years ago, I didn't know a whole lot about that, but I think there was a good fit of um, having also been partnered with somebody for a decade and kind of watching how law enforcement affects people and families and having that broader understanding as well. Yeah. So you experienced, I mean, with you being a therapist, especially for, for child victims, I and mean, I was a child crime detective, mm. I only did it for two years and I had to tap out. That's, that's not easy work. You're talking about secondary trauma. You were experiencing sec. you had to be, you, you, you're not superhuman, right? Sometimes you're experiencing that as well. What was that? I mean, you're a mental health professional, so you know this stuff, right? You're, you're going into it, knowing the science and knowing facts uh, but you can't be immune to it. No, and I I do think um, like there was a time frame in probably 2012 through 2014 where um, everything got really hard. And I I've always worked on trauma cases um, a lot with children, but by that time I sort of expanded to working with other groups of folks who had experienced trauma, um, all ages and all of that, and different types of trauma, but. It seems like the the thing that got missed in a lot of our professions, and I would include my own in this, that they didn't really tell us what to do with all of the information that we were going to receive. And and I think the, I remember being in grad school and sort of getting the, um, you know, you should have a hobby and you should, you know, take walks and, and sort of, you know, do things that put you back together. And um, and I think the part that got missed for almost everybody is that you also don't get to skip over what it feels like to take that kind of information in, that it's, it's heartbreaking. And when we go from hearing something that is really painful or in some cases seeing things that are painful 
to doing all of the things that we're told to do, um, which is, you know, take a hot shower and read a book and all of that, that we skip over this part that you just have to feel it and be in pain for a while. And when we don't skip that piece, those things become kind of a repair. Like they are the things that put you back together after you have had your heart broken by something. And if we skip over the piece of feeling it, then they're just sort of a distraction, right? Then we're like coming home from a really long day of hearing difficult things and trying to take a hot shower. And like, I have done all of the things that I was told to do and thought to myself like, oh no, it's all still there. Like, I don't know what to do with this. And the comparison that I give uh, pretty regularly in training is a reference to the movie, The Green Mile. Uh, which if you if you didn't see it or you don't remember it, it was a Stephen King film. So it's got kind of this fantastical element to it. And it's a guy who's on death row who can touch people and absorb their pain and suffering. And then he coughs out what looks like flies and then the flies dissipate into the air. And I remember seeing that again and thinking, this is what we do all day long. Like we just walk around sort of absorbing other people's pain and suffering. And the problem is they never really taught us how to cough out all the flies. And so we were stuck with them. And when I talk to people about, like, I need you to be able to process this, to talk and think and feel about it until it doesn't hurt as much anymore. Like, that's the whole concept behind doing trauma therapy. It's why I get people to talk about the things that they've seen and experienced, because that's how we cough out the flies. And once you understand how to digest pain, um, yours or other people's, you can sort of go forever, right? Like, then there's nothing that can kind of take you apart because you're capable of understanding what's coming your way and also no longer afraid of it, that we don't have to try to avoid what emotional pain feels like because we know that we can survive that too, if that makes sense. I like the, yeah, totally. And I like that anticipation, right? Because that way when I have that day at work and I see that thing or I do that thing, mm-hmm. I can I can mentally process, right now I'm taking care of business, right? So I'm, I'm focused and I'm holding it all together but I'm going to need to process this later, right? Like knowing that instead of it sneaking up, I I was a child crime detective and I was reading a book to two or three of my daughters and they were all really little at the time. It was a, a Cabbage Patch kids book. And I'm not afraid to cry. I mean, I, when I was deployed to Iraq, I watched a, a, a movie about dads and daughters and I was a weeping mess in my tent, right? I mean, so I'm okay crying, but over Cabbage Patch Kids, I'm, I'm midway through this book and I'm starting to cry and I'm like, what's wrong with me, right? The flies are kind of starting to leak out a little bit mm-hmm. and I'm like going, and then I started thinking about my day and I went, oh, okay. Yeah, yep, this makes this makes some sense why these orphaned kids that, you know, grow in a Cabbage Patch or whatever, I don't even remember the theme anymore, but it's, it's, uh, it's and, and I'm a third generation cop. You know, they had us read, Dr. Gil Martin's book, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement. I remember thinking in the academy, I'm gonna, I got this, mm-hmm. right? Like I, I'm reading the book about it. Mm-hmm. I've seen it happen with my dad a little bit, right? So I know how to almost be bulletproof, you know, mm-hmm. from this thing. And then it just totally snuck up on me. Mm-hmm. It's like, where'd that come from? You've been working with law enforcement for a while. You've experienced, you've kind of walked in our shoes with you being a, a trauma therapist yourself what what are some of the challenges that we're facing within our our first responder culture because i like the the fact that you that you treat firefighters as well we're really out there doing a lot of the similar work we're on the calls together 
What are some of these challenges that we face within this, this first responder culture? I think there's obviously there's layers to anything and there's the fundamental piece of like, I think most places are a little short staffed. you know, there's mandatory overtime. There's um, when somebody calls out sick or uh, one of the departments that I work with just had a shooting where I think five, four or five people were involved in it. And in a department of under a hundred, like that's going to be really tough on staffing for a while. Like then other folks are going to get called in because they're sent in, they're sent home on admin leave. And, and so I think the, the lack of staffing, the sort of sentiment around what it means to be in law enforcement right now, I don't know that firefighters are necessarily facing the same thing, but I think it's not, it's not shiny right now and hasn't been for a while. And so I think that that takes a toll on people as well and can make them a little bit angrier. And that's something that I think, I think anger in law enforcement is really one of the most prominent things that I've run into that I'm sort of trying to figure out how to help people navigate. Cause it's not being angry all the time is not a great way to live. Right. And, no. and I'm, I don't, everybody in any given department can think of at least one or two people that they know that are sort of angry all the time yeah. and they're not usually particularly easy to be around and they don't look like they're enjoying their life in any way. And so I think the level of anger is, is hard. And then in addition, like, it's not just like, not just law enforcement or, or fire that is suffering, like the world is sort of suffering. And, and when you are in any kind of a helping profession, which is why when you say any therapist that you know is booked out six months, like people are really struggling right now. And so there's a lot more conflict. There's a lot more pain. There's a lot more suffering. And so if you're in a profession that is in any way engaging in that, I think it's really hard right now. And so there's, I'm sure that I'm leaving something out that someone's like, don't forget about this. But those are the things kind of off the top of my head that I think are making it difficult. And then, you know, fears around what, how potentially the law changes have affected people and affected the crime rate and all of that. So I've heard you do public speaking engagements, I think twice. And I remember you talking about anger if I remember right, there's, you've said that there's two emotions that are acceptable for men to express in our society, or maybe it was in first responder culture. Uh, what were those two emotions that kind of are culturally acceptable for us to show? Um, it was actually three emotions you get. Okay. Thank you. Three. <laughs> so, uh, I, what I started noticing, because honestly, like prior to working with first responders, the majority of my clients had really been women and children. Like I had men as a general rule, just did not come to therapy. Um, and if they did, I think often they found other men to go to therapy with instead of coming um, and seeing me. And so then in 2018, like I start working with these different departments and my whole caseload sort of does this turnover and it became mostly men. <clears throat> and it was uh, startling, like the difference in terms of um, how men and and women are sort of socialized to experience emotion. And I'm, I'm so oversimplifying here, right? Like I'm just going to give you the basics, but that's good for me. Okay. So the, one of the first things that I really noticed is that men can only really show up with three emotions in a socially acceptable way. So um, it was, you know, calm or happy, which is like the majority of life that mowing your lawn, watching a movie, parenting, you know, hugging your partner after a long day, apathetic, and not giving a shit about 
anything um, or angry. And that outside of those three emotions, um, I think a lot of the other ones, all of the other ones got taken off the table a very long time ago. Um, And I think a piece of that is just being raised a boy in this culture that um, I think around the age of about five or six years old, most boys get a pretty clear message of um, don't be a pussy, like pardon my language, but they get that from everywhere you know, coaches and teachers and peers and siblings and parents. And that when boys show up as sad, ashamed, grieving, disappointed, afraid, like all of these other things that are sort of a very natural part about being human, we kind of implicitly or explicitly kick them back into line. And so implicit would look like we're just going to ignore you until you're done. Um, Explicit would be somebody literally saying, like, don't be a little bitch. Um, and instructing boys about like, this is not how we do this anymore. You're too old for that. And so boys learn pretty quickly how to navigate that. Um, and I think a lot of it depends on the people that raised us as well. And there are lots of people that were raised in a home that I think it didn't have to be perfect, but like it was good. You know, you knew that you were loved. You knew that um, your parents would show up for things that mattered to you. They would kiss you and hug you goodnight. And um, they were proud of you and said, I love you. And like all these different pieces. And if you grew up in a home that was like that, chances are you probably have a little bit more access to emotion. That if you got a hug and a kiss and told it that it was okay to be sad, that you will understand a little bit more about what sadness feels like and how to process it. And then I think there are people that grew up in homes that were not necessarily abusive, but just cold. So like if if you had parents that were gone all of the time, um, or if you grew up in a home where like a parent was an alcoholic and they just, it wasn't that they were awful. They were just sleep, right. Or passed out or watching TV or something like that. And you, a lot of times people were sort of left to raise themselves in homes like that. And then there are homes that people grew up in that were just terrifying that it didn't matter what you did, it was never going to be good enough. Um, people were hurt. Uh, they were told they were a piece of shit. And it people did not show up for things that mattered to children and showed them that they were valuable. And I think when kids grow up in a home like that, it's not just socially unacceptable to be sad or scared. It's also a huge liability, right? Your life is going to get worse if you show up with those emotions. And so I think you see people that are, you know, naturally more shut down around emotions like that, because they learned very quickly that these were going to cause more pain. And then you throw on, like, then we grow up and you throw on, you know, potentially the military, if that's a fit, or at least law enforcement or first responder culture, um, which sort of reinforces this idea that like, yes, these are great rules to follow. (laughs) Please follow them, you know, as long as you are around us and, you know, you can be a part of this mildly fucked up family. And then, you add onto it the the primary and secondary trauma that people are exposed to, which is like situation after situation that naturally would generate the emotion that the people aren't allowed to feel. So they would naturally generate fear and sadness and grief and like things that are inherent in what trauma feels like. And yet they can't show up as that, right? Because it's not accepted in um, both as, Um, a man and also as a first responder. And so these things just sort of get squished down into this trash compactor um, because prior to, and and currently we're still sort of trying to destigmatize this idea of talking through things, but 
at least prior to the last five years or more, that it was hard to it was hard to figure out how to talk about it, who to talk about it with, if there was oh, yeah. value to it. And I think people just sort of shied away from it for a thousand reasons, right? Like you just experienced it. Why would you want to relive it if you already survived this thing? You just want to move past it and put it behind you. And I think for for women in these professions, typically we're socialized fairly differently as women. And it depends on who raised you, blah, blah, blah. But I think for women, there's two things that happen. One is that they have to learn very quickly about what emotions are acceptable. Um, because as a woman, like if I'm sad or scared, that doesn't really matter. Like nobody is going to judge me or tell me to not be that way. And so when you enter a culture that is dominated by men, basically, that you have to figure out what are the emotions that I'm allowed to show up with. And then moving forward, women can never break these rules. Right? That when women break rules around emotion in professions like this, there is it confirms this underlying belief that we don't really belong here anyway, that we're unstable or that we're a liability in some way. And so when I've worked with women in law enforcement um, or fire, like often they might be even more kind of guarded around emotions because they know that it's linked also to their, their reputation and the perception of who they are in this profession, if they're respectable or not. Yeah. With there being, and you said over the last five years or so, there's been this this shift within the first responder culture to where it is more acceptable. Mm-hmm. How, how far down the tracks are we on this? Meaning, have we, you know, have we done a full 180 and we're we're going, or are are we only one degree? <laughs> how much have you seen? I mean, obviously it's it's case by case, right? I mean, around the country, it's going to be different everywhere depending on i mean here in the pacific northwest mm-hmm. I, I was up at monroe uh, police department earlier this week talking at their their annual awards banquet on wellness and they, they have a therapist in-house mm-hmm. once a week right i mean that's huge mm-hmm. I, I think about my dad's career one time he went to his chief and asked for peer support and i mean keep in mind this is like the 80s or 90s and the chief said we're cops. We don't do that. Right. Like you just bury that stuff, right? Just trash compactor, push it down more. So I don't know. What are your experiences? Is it, are, have we, have we like really made this huge shift or is it just a little bit? I don't know. Um, I think that it's certainly more acceptable at this stage of the game. And I, I would say I probably get five to seven calls a week of people. Oh, wow. Coming to come in who are a part of those professions and or emails or whatever. And I'm kind of down to a place where I can only take folks from the departments that I contract with just because I have a, a caseload of 120, which, you know, if you talk to any therapist, that's astronomical. But I also think it's, it's really hard to say no to people because, and there's the part that I think we're still working on is that if, if I say no to somebody, you know, or I can't do it right now, chances are they're probably just going to disappear, right? That they won't be, they won't go look for somebody else. Like this was the time that they were going to ask for help and it didn't work. And so there's not much tenacity behind. um, And that's not true for everybody, obviously, but that being shut down is sort of like a, okay, then I'm done trying this path. And I think there's some, there's some older folks in departments who still hold that mentality of like, we don't do it that way. Um, I think it's harder for leadership to seek out 
support because uh, yes. I joke with them that uh, I have a meme that says um, talking about your feelings is so important and you guys should absolutely do it, but I won't be. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I think leadership has a harder time accessing services as well. But, you know, I, I never really know like how far we can come. Like, is it, is it that every place has an in-house therapist? Is it that people just see more access to it is that we have more therapists in every community that specialize in doing this kind of work. Um, I don't know where we could possibly go with it. Um, but I do think that certainly progress has been made. And um, I remember going to one of the departments um, when I first started and I went to all three shifts. So um, now when I sign a new contract with a department, I'll do a training for each shift because I found that Originally, when I signed on with the first couple, I was just getting people who like um, were really struggling, you know, like by the time they were asking for help, like things felt really bad to them. And I was after like six or seven months of that, I was like, you know, I feel like we could give everybody the same information across the board and then they can decide when counseling would be helpful for them. But I don't think that it's I don't think that people's lives should have to be um this hard before they get this the psychoeducation around like why this process happens this way and how we would treat it and so that's probably the one hour snapshot training that you attended the first time was i just wanted people to know like this is why i think this plays out this way and here's how we can combat it and and so but prior to doing those trainings i had gone into um, one of the departments and i went to each shift and just sort of introduced myself and gave out cards and all of that and um those are long days. Like if you're, you know, you're up at four o'clock in the morning and then you're there by six and you do that meeting and then you come back for swings and then you have to stay and wait for graveyard, um, which is this one, I think was at nine o'clock at night. And oh, wow. I was tired and I came in and introduced myself and like, I, they are, let me put a disclaimer on this. They are lovely humans. We have a good relationship. I've known this department for years now. Um, but their graveyard shift was kind of shitty to me. Like they were just, they were making fun of me. They were asking, you know, personal questions. And, and then by the time I finally left and they said they were going to hand my card out to all the homeless people so that my phone would get blown up all night. So I leave and I walk out of the the meeting room. And as soon as I round the corner, I hear this like eruption of laughter and I don't care who you are. You hear a room full of people start laughing when you leave it and it doesn't feel good. And so I remember getting back to my car and I just like sat in the driver's seat for a little bit. And like I kept repeating to myself the same thing, which was um, you're not here to be liked. You're here because they need you. And like mm. said it over and over again, like you, it doesn't matter if they like you, like you just have to keep coming back until they can find the value in what you were proposing. Right. And and sure shit, man, like, I mean, I worked with probably a third of the department or more at this point, and they are much more accepting. And but I think that's the piece that takes time and like that takes tenacity from people who are not part of that culture to stay in it until the value can be seen. Does that make sense? Yeah, yes. Oh, completely. I mean, and the more... I mean, when you see that shift in someone, right? When you have that that person that's just angry all the time, mm -hmm. uh, or, or maybe even less, 
you know, stress symptoms. But when you have that, that kind of person who changes and that opens people's eyes, like what, dude, what's, what's up? Like, you're not being pissed off all the time. You're not wanting to punch everyone in the face, right? Like Mm -hmm. you didn't call me whatever, you know, (laughs) what, what, what was the change? And when, when, when senior, I was uh, talking with another, another retired cop and he's a podcast host and, and we were talking about the, just the power of story. Mm-hmm. When you have anyone who's willing to share their story of being in a tough spot, healing their brain and, and, and coming out the other side, it's powerful. But when you got one of those senior dudes that was just like, yeah, this person's really bad and they get better. You know, it's like, holy smokes. I mean, now everyone believes now everyone believes, Hey, I've been struggling a little bit. I was keeping it quiet, but if that guy got better, man, I can get better too. Mm-hmm. What does it look like? So, I mean, we all know it's like leather couch, right? We lay down and we start telling you about our childhood. And when we saw our parents naked, right? I mean, that's what therapy is. Oh my God. No. <laughs> okay. So, so for, I mean, I've, I've been through therapy, right? I've, I've, yeah. I really enjoy having a relationship with a counselor to where I can, they can help me unpack things. But for the listeners that maybe haven't made that first call or that first email, what does it look like being in a therapy relationship with a mental health professional? I've worked with and trained a lot of therapists in my career. And I will tell you, like, everybody is a little bit different. And so um, in the same way that you don't just automatically meet somebody and become friends with them, that like you kind of try people on for size to decide whether or not you could be their friend. I would say the same thing is true with connecting with a therapist that if you meet somebody and you're like, this just isn't a fit for me. Um, Like I don't feel connected to this person or they don't seem to understand or get me, then I would try to find somebody else, right? Like I wouldn't stick necessarily with somebody that you don't feel a good connection with by the second or third session. And so we're not all cut exactly the same. Obviously everybody has their own style. Um, I have a tendency to be more, I'm trying to find a nice word for it, but abrupt is probably (laughs) my, my, you know, straightforward. That would be, I'm a straightforward therapist. I will tell you in, you know, the kindest way possible, like what I think is going on. And, uh, and I'll call you on your shit if I think that you are not being realistic about something. And I think for this population seems to actually really appreciate that. So we're a good fit together, but when people first come in, I, a lot of times folks will have you fill out like questionnaires or they'll have you do assessments or, you know, kind of have a series of questions that they ask. And I would say um, I have a tendency to just sort of start talking with people. And I would say the only question that I really ask um, directly is like, what, what made you decide that it was time to come to therapy? Like, I'm curious what the shift was that happened or if it was an event, if it was something someone said to you um, or having a panic attack or like, what was the thing that changed your uh, mind about this? And so then we start talking about things and, um, and how they got to where they are. And I think it's funny. I actually used to not really value uh, much about talking about people's childhood um, until I maybe year like seven or eight, I would say, because most of the time I was working with children anyway. So we were talking about their childhood because they were actively in it. Um, but when when I get to hear like what's going on in their life currently, 
um, a lot of times, like the way that we were raised and taught to think about ourselves and about the world, like that factors into how we interpret the things that are happening to us today. Yes. And so if I grew up thinking like nothing that I do is ever good enough or that if I'm not perfect, then I am a failure, that's going to influence the way that I perceive having been through this shooting or having been through, you know, not getting a promotion or something like that. And so our interpretations about who we are and what we're capable of often come from the message, the, excuse me, the messaging that we got when we were kids. Uh, yeah. And so at some point, that's not usually where I start. Like I want to start with what got you here and then what does your life look like now? But at some point I usually say like, can you tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up? And the place that we're usually trying to get to, because I treat trauma, like I treat trauma and anxiety disorders. And outside of that, like I can do some other things, but if I had to pick, those would be my top two. And at some point we'll usually get to a discussion about like, you know, there are things that happen over the course of people's lives that we retain. We retain memories as a general rule because they are encoded with a really strong emotion. Um, and so it could be a really positive emotion or it could be a really painful emotion. But if I ask you about every birthday party that you've ever had, you probably couldn't tell me about all of them. But you could tell me about your your most special one and you could tell me about the birthday that sucked the most because they they had emotion to them. And so when we look at traumatic memories, that's very similar that if people go on, you know, let's say 500 calls in any given time period, most of them will be forgotten because that's just how our brains work. We start eliminating information that we don't need anymore. Some of them will have pissed you off and they'll be retained because of that. Uh, some of them will be funny and worth retelling to other people. And then out of the 500, there will probably be two or three that just dug under your skin in a really different way. And they yeah. painful. And um, people retain those. And they're also the ones that we don't really want to talk about because they hurt so much. And I'll say, like, if I if I asked you, like, what are the strongest memories that you have of calls? My guess is that you could tell me, you know, a few of them right now. Not that we're going to do that. But um, I I'm curious if people would be willing to sort of make a list um, and give each call like a title and. Sometimes they'll do it on their phone. Sometimes they'll write it down. Um, but most people, if they've been in this career for any length of time, could come up with about between 10 and 12 stories pretty quickly about yeah. things that they remember that it stood out to them. And then we kind of start plugging through those one at a time. And um, I think the goal ultimately is that people would experience a level of emotion and potentially distress around recalling them. And then the more we do it, the less intense it gets. And I, I used to give this example to kids that applies across the board, but when I would want them to tell me about something that had happened to them, we would talk about like what the scariest movie was that they'd ever seen in their life. And they would name whatever the movie was. And we talk about what it felt like the first time that they watched it, or probably the only time that they watched it. Did they hide their face? Did they, you know, have nightmares? Was it really hard to watch? And um, and then I'll say, like, we're not going to do this, but what if we, in therapy, watched that movie like 30 times in a row? What do you think would happen? And they're like, well, it would get boring. I'm like, right. Probably not the first five to 10 times. Like, it wouldn't be boring by then. It would still be upsetting. And then we would be more interested in it, right? Like, we would know who died. We'd know who the killer was. 
we know all the jump scares, you know, we could start looking at the movie from this perspective of like, I wonder how they did that stunt. And then at some point you would look at me and be like, Phoebe, I don't want to watch this anymore. Like I'm just bored of it. And it's not going to be your favorite movie like ever, but it can become something that is eventually boring because that's what we do when we repeat things. And so talking about stories is exactly the same that the more that you repeat it and have emotions about it, the less intense it becomes until it's never going to be your favorite memory, but it could be boring. I think it's interesting. I like that you get into thoughts. One of my memories, and they said we weren't going to get into it, but I guess we're, we're <laughs> going to do this now. One of mine is uh, I went out on a death investigation. Uh, and I mean, I've been on, I don't know, hundreds, right? Right. And, but this guy was, was, was battling cancer. She was home alone. Our officers had responded to a 911 call, 911 hang up call, and this was a dumb phone to where they couldn't like triangulate it or whatever, right? Probably about four or five hours before. Can't figure out where the 911 call came from and didn't hear anything a whole lot in the background. Mm-hmm. And then the husband comes home and finds his wife in the living room. And the part, the, the scene bugged me. Mm-hmm. It was a natural death. I mean, but it bugged me and it took me a long time to figure out that. I'm afraid of dying alone, right? Like, like there's a fear there for me. And then when later, when I had an anxiety disorder and I thought I was dying, Mm -hmm. I had a a couple of major anxiety attacks where my wife was home. One of them, she wasn't Mm -hmm. one of them. She wasn't. And I ran next door and knocked on my neighbor's door because like, I, I didn't want to be alone. Right? Like, even though I knew it was an anxiety attack, it felt like a heart attack. So, you know, there's always that little asterisk in the back of my mind going, but is this one going to be the rule? So it's just interesting, I think. Uh, and I don't know if that necessarily had something to do with my childhood because I don't re- ever remember being alone in my childhood. I had very uh, involved parents and mm-hmm. siblings and friends. But it was just interesting to to figure or to, to kind of unpack, right? Why did that one bother me mm-hmm. compared to the... 100, 200 other death scenes that I've been on. Mm-hmm. Some really gruesome ones, homicides. But this is the one that that bugged me. I think it was panic. Yeah. Because we could figure out that she was probably in her bed and from the blood trail ran down the hall, mm-hmm. was trying to call 911 and then passed out, right? And just that, um, for whatever reason, when I saw it, I took some of that on, right? I took in some of those flies of the tra- the trauma that I perceived or the panic that I perceived her feeling in that moment. Mm-hmm. So do you, do you work with peer support teams then mm-hmm. within a first responder community? How much value does that bring? Because you're, you're talking about the more often we talk about these with trusted people, mm-hmm. uh, it, it starts to destigmatize the event. You didn't say it that way, but I guess that's the way my brain was processing it. What's the value then in talking with a trained peer about these events that bother us? I think peer support teams are sort of one of the first ventures that law enforcement took into what do we do when people are struggling? Like to answer that question. And I, I find a lot of value in peer support um, because I think, especially when it is folks that people in the departments would naturally go to anyway. So I remember one of the departments when they were forming their peer support team, they sent an email out to the whole department and basically said, if you were going to talk to somebody, who would you pick on this department? And got all the names, you know, and sort of took the top 
five or six and then went to those people and said like, Hey, you know, basically like your peers have identified you as somebody that they would talk to. Would you be willing to be on peer support? And I thought it was such a strategic, um, thoughtful way to go about it and to pick people that, um, that folks would go to naturally anyway. And obviously that's not always the case. And sometimes peer support teams have been around for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. And so I wouldn't like, get rid of everybody and start from scratch by any means. But I think the, one of the challenges that I've seen with peer support, actually two main challenges. One is that whoever's on your peer support team, they have worked with you for a long time. And so there's historical context, like people have prior relationships, they have their take on who this person is. They um, evaluate their work ethic and all these pieces that I think factor in and sometimes make it harder to go with, within a department when you are having a hard time because of trust, right? Like, do you trust this person? Do you feel connected to this person? Because they're not just beamed down here to do peer support. They're also a part of this. And I think sometimes that eliminates accessing that for people, especially if like, let's say somebody who was a former FTO, you know, of like half the team, like, I don't, it's hard for them to go to somebody that they trained to, to access, um, access help. Yeah. And then I think the other piece I've seen and in Pierce County, we're sort of working to like, how do we supplement any given peer support team when there is a, a death within their department? Because when someone is shot and killed or, um, you know, dies of cancer or something like that, peer support also knows this, right. And they're also inundated with sadness and grief and loss and all the things that they're the rest of the folks in their department are struggling with as well. And I would never not want that peer support team to sort of be in charge of leading um, that process. But I think it's a lot to ask them to like get their shit together quicker than everybody else so that they can then be a shoulder to lean on as well. Um, And so I think we're sort of looking at how do we keep those folks at the center and then provide you know, a supplement from other departments to come in and um, just be helpful in that respect. So yeah, I really like the concept. I really like what I've seen happen with it. And I think there are also some inherent challenges. Hey, let's do a pivot here to the family. Hmm. Uh, Because obviously, you know, within our first responder community, a lot of us have families, whether it be our spouse, whether it be our kids. If if you as a therapist experience secondary trauma and me as a child crime detective experience secondary trauma, my kids are experiencing it as well. Right. I mean, I, I can tell you they experienced it because I didn't know what was happening within me. Mm-hmm. And when I felt anxiety, I also felt some fear there, right? Like I was feeling anxious about something and I was afraid of something infringing on the safety of my family and I would lose my shit. Right. Like, I mean, I would, I'd scream, I'd yell. Right. And, so they were taking on trauma because of me mm-hmm. not realizing what was happening within me and not not doing something about it. What can we do as parents to help our kids, right? Help ourselves, but then also to kind of help our kids with this, just recognizing that they're going to take on some of this as well. I think, especially with children, like if you, everybody's had a case that involves children. You know, like whether it's on patrol or if you're a detective, like children get hurt a lot. And I think I, I remember, so I'm also on the child deduction response team um, for our, uh, one of the departments that's partnered with the FBI in this area. And uh, 
I remember my daughter asked if she could walk home from school one day and I was just like silent. Like I just didn't say anything because I knew, I knew that I didn't want that to happen. And realistically, like there were, there were hundreds of kids and parents walking home from school, you know, like I was imagining my, my one kid sort of walking down the street by herself with a van following her. And that would be the end of me. Right. And I was quiet for long enough that she goes, just because you know about all those bad things that happen to kids doesn't mean that I should not be able to walk home. And I was like, Oh, you're right. You know, like you're grounded, but you're right. You're grounded, but you're right. No. And I was like, they, she's not wrong. Like, all of these kids get to walk home from school and I'm saying no to her. And should I say no to slumber parties? Should I say no to, you know, if she wants to go on a trip with another family when she's a little bit older, like where are, where do my boundaries lie with this? Am I going to homeschool her because I'm afraid that there might be a school shooting? Like, I think that there's all these pieces that we have to figure out, like where is the line of risk that I am willing to take? And we all have a line with any given topic. So if you take, Driving, for example, that my line for driving is that I wear my seatbelt. I don't drink and drive. I, you know, don't text when my car is moving. Like I have sort of these basic things that you're like, okay, that seems fairly reasonable. I go within 10 miles of the speed limit and anything above that line feels kind of crazy. Right. So if I said, I actually have a five point harness in my car and I have, I wear a helmet everywhere and no one can turn on the radio or speak and I go five miles below the speed limit. You're like, that's kind of crazy, right? Weirdo. Yes. And anything below the line feels stupid. And so if I told you like, oh, I never wear my seatbelt because I have an airbag and I can have two or three glasses of wine and I'm gold, right? It doesn't really matter um, because I think I drive better that way. That you would be like, that's kind of stupid. Like you're taking risks that don't need to be taken. Um, and the problem with trauma or anxiety is that it kind of erases the line that we have picked. And so everything has the potential to feel like it's stupid. So we get further and further along towards crazy, right? And we make new rules and we follow new routines and we tell our kids like you can't walk in crosswalks or you can never drive down that hill at night. Or like we try to find ways to eliminate the experience of pain because we've seen it on other people's faces so many times that we can't bear the idea that it might be our story. And I think with therapy, like my goal is that we would figure out where do we think the line should be? And then let's start operating as though it does exist there until it actually does again. And so letting her walk home from school with, you know, some caveat rules, like that she has to walk with somebody, letting her have a slumber party, at somebody's house if I have met the parents. Like, that there are things that I think I'm unwilling to eliminate from my children's childhood um, just because I happen to know how kids die, right? Or how they are hurt um, or the accidents that could happen. I will not change the way that they grow up just because of that, if that makes sense. And there are going to be, every time I say that in a training, people are like, I think that's wrong. Like we know more and we should be able to change our kids' lives to keep them more safe. But I think at the end of the day, the root of all anxiety disorders is this deep fear of unpredictability. We do not like it when life feels unpredictable. And yet life is incredibly unpredictable, right? There are, there is no reason why if you like, I, 
I've been walking around this planet for 43 years with little more than the awareness of a toddler. Okay. Like (laughs) I do not pay attention to my surroundings. I'm sure that I've almost gotten into plenty of car accidents. Like I don't pay, I don't look at who's around me in the mall. I don't know where the exits are. I'm literally shopping for shoes and I am (laughs) here alive and well. And there are other people who had way more tactical knowledge than me. Right. Like that is not reasonable. And the unpredictability is what really gets at people is like, why does this not make sense? And when I hold that to be true, the other piece that I have to hold to be true is that my children are also not special. I am not special. Right. There are the things that happen to other people's families could happen to mine too. And sitting in that pain or that fear or that knowledge um, is part of doing this work and allowing it to be true. Right. And eventually emotions dissipate, right? All emotions dissipate that we trust that when it comes to the positive ones, like if you had a great day, you know, three weeks ago, you would know that it was going to come to an end and you would be like, I really want to sit in what this feels like for as long as I possibly can, because I love it. It feels so good to like be in the sun with my kids, you know, doing fun activities and laughing and having good food And that doesn't mean that you're in a great mood today, right? Because that emotion will have a naturally, um, a natural dissipation to it. And I think when it comes to painful emotions, we actually don't trust that. We don't trust that it has a natural end to it. And it depends on the thing, right? Like if one of, if my dog died, I would be very sad, right? And I would have to feel that sadness all the way through. But if one of my children died, that sadness would be, much greater, much more significant. And so we don't trust that there is a natural end because we can't see it, right? We can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And because of that, I watch people like subvert this process into anger or blame. And so whatever happened, there's a natural emotion attached to it, which is as a general rule, and I'm not saying anger isn't natural. I think it certainly can be and that there's a use for it. Um, But when we live there, it doesn't, help us in the long run, right? Like the usual emotions are shame, grief, fear, sadness, like um, obviously with something negative that happens. And if we can see those all the way through, at the end of it is healing, right? Or resilience or having a deeper understanding of yourself and the world around you and like allowing that kind of pain to shape you into the next person that you're capable of being. And when we sidetrack it and we go off on the anger and blame, you have to find a way to stay there. And like we were talking about earlier, that there are people that you know who have found a way to stay there. And it doesn't make for a great life, right? It just keeps you in this space that never actually allows you to heal from the things that have, that you've encountered. I was really expecting you to say, drink water, go for a walk and listen. And instead, you gave all of us a little bit of homework. Because I mean, literally, as you're saying that, I, mean, I, have, I have four daughters, right? Like, yeah. So as they've gone through this, the... The sisterhood, we've changed our parenting, and in some ways, I think we've done it for the better. Mm-hmm. And in other ways, I think my, me and my wife need to go on a date this afternoon and have a little conversation. And it's not on her. It's not on her. I would I would argue probably it's more on me in reference to making decisions based on fear. Mm-hmm. And I, I've been taught this lesson before. My 
my 19 year old wanted to wrestle in middle school. And when she told me it was co-ed, I didn't just say no. I said, hell no, there's no way a boy is going to be touching my daughter in this little singlet thing. And I had one of my, my buddies at work. Uh, I was working in a school at the time. So it was a teacher that initially he heard me tell my story and he kind of, you know, gave me a pat on the back and he came back to me a day or two later and he goes, Hey, Chris, uh, my pastor at my church was talking to us about making decisions based on fear and about the fact that that's not the way we're supposed to do it. Um, can you tell me why you don't want your daughter to wrestle? And I was like, you jerk, <laughs> shut up. Don't, don't do this. I'm like, oh, it's exactly what it was. I was afraid. Yes. I was like, All right. Well, it's your decision as a parent, but I'm just telling you, fear is not the right reason to make decisions. You should be based on principle, right? Morals, ethics, core values, whatever those things are but not fear. Mm -hmm. My daughter ended up wrestling. She destroyed the boys. I'd be in the, I'd be sitting there watching. I'd start to cheer and then I'd kind of calm down. Cause I, you know, if the boys' parents were around us, I didn't want you know mm -hmm. them to be, my wife didn't care. She's screaming and yelling, destroy him. I'm like, babe, sh his parents might be, she's like, I don't care about his parents. <laughs> so great experience that I would have robbed her of if, if I would have stayed in that fear emotion, right. Of, of making a decision based on fear. I read this great quote by um, a woman named Hillary McBride, and I'm probably going to butcher it. So forgive me, but like it. it was one of those quotes that you read and it just sort of stops you in your tracks for a second. And it was that more or less like the children who grow up in homes where they were never allowed to experience an emotion from beginning to end become adults who don't believe that emotions have an end. And mm. that I think even the best parents, like we don't like to see our kids be upset. And so we fix it, right? Or we sort of shame them out of it and say like, you don't need to feel that way because of X, Y, or Z. And the, the inherent problem with that, that even if it's coming from a really good place is that what we're teaching kids is that not only can I not tolerate these emotions from you, but you can't tolerate these emotions, right? I can't hang with you when you are sad or scared or frustrated or disappointed, like I'm going to make it better for you, or I'm going to tell you, you shouldn't feel that way. And when we let kids play those emotions all the way out until they feel the natural dissipation and we don't move away from that, what we're teaching them is like, you're capable of handling any emotion. There's nothing that you can't do and there's nothing you can't survive. And I just thought it was such a beautiful description of like, why as adults, we have that sense of like, no, I can't do this. Right. I can't sit in this emotion because it will take me apart um, or I'll, I'll never stop crying or I'll throw up or I'll have a panic attack or, you know, whatever. And like there is nothing that we can't feel all the way through. Right. There are emotions that are important in, in terms of how we experience the world. And when I do trainings, you probably heard me say this phrase that I have not found another way to live life in full color besides having a full range of emotions. Like when people come in and they're unhappy and they feel flat or numb or like gray, that I'm like the, the piece that is missing is the colorful emotions that are part of being human. And we have to figure out how to get back to that in a way that is really meaningful. And I think that's the piece that people don't like to hear because it's, it's art, it's not science, right? Like I can't give you a list. We just have to practice feeling these again. So I just wanted to add that. Thank you. Help, help me out as a dad then. Cause that, I think that's, I think what you just said is super powerful. And I think there's some rubber meets the road things that you might be able to give me here. So, you know, I got four daughters, right? There's a lot of emotions and then I'm also an emotional dude. So whatever. Um, and so as they're, 
as they're upset, disappointed, throw in whichever emotion it is, instead of me saying, hey, babe, it's really not that big a deal, right? Like, take a breath. It's not that big a deal. You're gonna be okay. Instead of me saying that, what do I, what do I do instead to help them, to help them continue through that, through that emotion? I think that's where validation comes in. And validation is basically treating someone else's emotions or experiences real. And so it doesn't mean that you have to agree with them, right? If like I take high school breakups, right? That as parents, often we look at it and we're either like, whew, she's not dating that person anymore. Or we're like, well, it was never going to end like in marriage and a lifetime together anyway. Like this is just a high school relationship. And I don't know if you remember being broken up with in high school, but it fucking hurts. Right. And I think it's humiliating. It's painful. It's makes you question whether or not you're lovable, like all these different pieces. And so as adults, we might have this broader perspective, but as a kid, it doesn't mean it's not painful. And so telling somebody like, you know, you'll be fine, you'll recover, you'll find somebody new. That is not as powerful as saying that really hurt you. Right. You are really sad. You miss this person. And like just letting their emotion be real is the thing that helps people. And it feels counterintuitive, right? That you want to make it better, right? But in just saying like, I'll sit with you as you cry about this thing until it passes over you, right? Because I know you can tolerate what it feels like to be broken up and I can tolerate your pain around that. And so if they're frustrated, you know, and sometimes you can guess at the emotion, like sometimes I don't know what people are feeling. And so I'll say like, if I were in your shoes, I would feel really disappointed right now. Is that your experience? And then they get to say yes or no. If they're like, no, that's not my experience. I'm really angry. Okay. I can also see why you would be angry, right? That you're just saying, I believe you, right? I believe that this is what it feels like to be you right now. And I'm not going to make you feel different. I had this experience. So my son, he's 14 now. And he is on the autism spectrum. So he was diagnosed when he was two and a half. And uh, this story happened when he was nine. So we went through all kinds of services, right? OT, PT, speech, developmental preschool. I learned sign language, like whole nine yards. And so when he was nine, we got referred to a new occupational therapist. And we went in, I met her, um, shook her hand. And then my son shakes her hand and she says, "Uh, you need to shake my hand harder. And so he tried again. And then she said, um, now you need to shake my hand like that and look me in the eye. And I was like, what is she doing? You know, like, that's not usually how people respond to him. Like, certainly when we're at a professional service place or whatever. So we go back into the intake room and um, she starts, she kind of reprimanded him for interrupting at one point. And then she starts asking me about his diet. And like at the time, this kid would have eaten cheese pizza morning, noon and night for the rest of his life. And so I'm like talking about how we've expanded that and that he eats peas and bananas and superfood green juice and broccoli. And like, and so I'm telling her all these things, you know, kind of proud of what we've done. And she looks at me and she goes, he's going to need a much broader diet than that. And hands me a piece of paper to take notes. And if there's one professional skill I've never mastered, it's pretending to like people that I don't actually like. (laughs) And so I start like, devolving into this 14 year old version of me with, with the crossed arms and the one word answers, you know, and I almost left, but then she said that my kids could play on the toys, which if you've never been to occupational therapy, like they're the world's funnest toys. They're like ball pits and swings and slides and 
you know, whatever. So my kids run off to play and I'm like, I guess I'm here. And so we go through the whole intake. It never gets better. And um, at the very end of it, she can tell I'm pissed. Like I'm not a subtle person. And so she said, do you have any questions for me? And I was like, I don't have any questions for you, but I want you to know what it feels like to come here. I was like, I don't think that you like my son. And I don't think you understand what we've been through in the last six years to get to where we are right now today. And I don't want to come back. Like you've got 18 years of experience and I don't want to hear any of it. And she at one point said she wished she had known I was a social worker. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not what difference. I'm a social worker. Like I'm sad because I'm his mother. And I'm telling you this because I'm a social worker and I know that there will be people who come in after me who may or may not be able to use their voice in the way that I can. And I need you to hear this. And, you know, she's crying and I'm crying and we agree I'm not coming back. And I get my kids and like we're leaving and I look to my son as we're on our way out and I go, hey, bud, how was that for you? And he looks back at me and he goes, that was so much fun. And I was like, God bless autism, man. Kid missed the whole fucking thing. But I think like when I think about the way that she responded to me, I, by the time I got to the car, I was like, the piece that was missing was the validation, right? That what I needed to hear was, wow, he's such a great kid. I can't wait to work with him. And yes. you guys have done so much to get to this place. Like, it's really phenomenal. Whatever it is, like, I just needed it to be acknowledged because what, what everybody is looking for is to be seen and understood. Right. And to have people believe that whether or not you've lived my life, that I believe that this is what it's felt like for you and vice versa. Like if you're if you are willing to share your story with me, I believe you. Right. Like everybody has a story and it, it's something that we tend to hold very close to us because it's personal. Um, and that if someone is willing to give you insight into who they how they became the person that they are today, that it's our job to look back and say, that makes complete sense, right? Like you make complete sense to me as you describe this. And I think when we miss that part, it's the thing that makes people want to back away from us, right? That we're not really listening. We're not hearing them. We don't believe them. We want them to feel differently or see it differently. And validation are the words that we use to communicate that we can see this person. Does that make sense in terms yes. of your kids? Yes. Oh, completely. I have to ask a follow-up question there. Did you slash your tires in the parking lot afterwards? Never. <laughs> Man, Phoebe, why you have to act like an adult? <laughs> I'm more of the, like, I'm going to cry in my car until I figure this out person. <laughs> okay. Well, that's the mature and the non-criminal response, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Honestly, getting arrested in Pierce County right now would probably not do my career any favors. <laughs> no, no, it probably wouldn't. It probably wouldn't. So, well played. Well played. Hey, we've talked about this, I think just once, maybe a couple of times during this, just the fact that, again, that it's, it's not two, two things. One, mental health professionals are booked out. Two, you might have an experience like you had with this, that she was a, a occupational therapist. Yeah. You might have an experience like you have, with, you had with this OT where it's clearly this relationship is not going to work. It's not that they're a bad therapist and you're a bad patient. Right. It's just as human beings, you're not, you're not compatible. Mm -hmm. And so I oftentimes use the analogy as I have a dentist. Mm -hmm. I've had a dentist for the same mm -hmm. dentist for 44 years, right? I mean, like it, my mom worked there. So I didn't, I didn't wait until I had dental problems to, to find a dentist because if I get in a bar fight 
and like half my teeth are missing, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's not the time to be opening up the yellow pages and going quality dentist, quality dentist, right? Like, I mean, I need to have that relationship established where I can call them up. And I've actually done this before, not because I was in a bar fight, but because I, you know, got smacked in the face during a basketball game. Mm-hmm. And my dentist came in within hours to fix my teeth, mm-hmm. right? Therapy. When I joined law enforcement, I was told to find a, lo- find a lawyer. Have a lawyer in your back pocket to where if you ever need them, you know who to call. Because if you're involved in a shooting, that's not the time to decide who you're going to call to represent you through this process. Yeah. No one ever told me to do that with a therapist. No one ever told me find a therapist that because when you get there, not if, mm-hmm. not maybe you're going to be one of the few. No, when you get there in your career after you after you've experienced vicarious and cumulative trauma or direct, you know, prim, mm-hmm. you know primary, know who you're going to call. I think that's one of the benefits to having folks that are with that are attached to departments um, is that it's not a mystery, and this person is already, you know, I've come in when some of the department or. Yeah, there's been a couple times where departments that I work with have been involved in something significant. And I'll come in on a Saturday, you know, to see folks or to go to the emergency operations center or to, you know, whatever it is. Like, I'll I'll go do those things because I already have a standing relationship with folks. The request that I would make is that if you go to therapy, don't do it just because someone was like, oh, you should find a therapist and have that in place already. Because we need, like, as a therapist, I need something to work on. Like, come to therapy when you want something to be different. And Mm -hmm. come in once, you know, or twice, or just say, like, hey, I just want to meet you when I'm at my baseline and, like, nothing's really going on. But, like, please don't make me see you once every two weeks to talk about nothing in preparation for things eventually at some point being difficult. Because not that it's not that it's a waste of time, but it's just sort of like a friendly conversation without much like teeth to it. If that makes sense. Like I want, Oh yeah. Um, I want to, I want someone to have the understanding, like um, in the same way that you wouldn't just go hang out with your doctor. Right. You wouldn't be like actually feeling perfectly healthy, you know, but you have a doctor. And then when you get sick, you call them and you say, I really need your help. Like, or if you break something, then you would go see them and they would fix it and help you with yeah. it. And I think with therapy, like having an understanding when something, when one of those two or three calls shows up, I am going to call this person because that's what we do when this happens. And I'm not going to delay it. I'm not going to, you know, say I don't need it. I'm just going to show up. We're going to work on it as quickly as we possibly can. And then I will, when things feel better, then I will go back to my regular life. I like it. I like you adding that. How about annual check-ins? Is that, do you think, do you see that as being valuable of, of maybe I don't have anything going on, but just like I go to my doc once a year and it's usually about a 10 minute appointment or less. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you see that same, is that also applicable within our mental health, just like our physical health? Sure. And I think I've always pushed back against the idea of departments making annual visits mandatory. Um, Cause I think, I don't know if you remember the vaccine, but as soon as we make something mandatory, people push back on it. Um, oh, heck yeah. We're humans. Yes. And so what I don't want is to be a punishment of some sort. I don't want to be the thing that people have to strategically avoid. Um, I'm yeah. here if you want help. And if you don't, that's okay. And so if people say like, it would be helpful to just check in once a year, regardless, so that I could do kind of a, an overall assessment of how I'm doing. Sure. But I think being in regular therapy means that we are going to be working on something and we have a, a focus. 
I like it. Hey, if uh, folks want to follow more of what you're doing or just learn more about you, how can they do that? I've got a professional Facebook page. I've got a website. Um, It's just phoebemulligan.com. And uh, I'm on LinkedIn. So any of those are options. Awesome. And for the listeners, those links will be down in the show notes. Phoebe, time is my most valuable commodity. I can't make more of it. I've tried, but it's not possible. You've given me a lot of yours. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. Wow, folks, what did you think about Phoebe's insights? There was a couple of those questions that I asked that I thought, I know what she's going to say here. You know, she's going to give us this really easy tool to work with. And instead, she dropped she dropped some truth serum on us. And it's the stuff that she said is valuable, but it's going to take me a little bit of time to process and really to be honest with myself about what I'm going to do with the knowledge that she shared with us. I think I know what I'm going to do with it, but I just, I have to, uh, I have to, to, again, be honest with myself with where I'm at and, and how I'm going to move forward in life. Hey folks, we want to hear from you. Jamie and I are constantly trying to make the podcast better. There's a few different ways that you can help us out. First and foremost, please follow us on whatever podcast platform that you're listening to us on or on YouTube. Uh, That will cause the next episode to come up in your feed. Also, you can rate and review us. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple, there's five stars waiting on our main page. We'd really appreciate a five-star rating that will increase the viewability for future listeners. However, folks, you've heard me say it. If we haven't earned five stars, keep your stars. Shoot me an email instead at chris at gravityct.com. Let us know how to make a better future marriage Monday topics or guests for me to interview. Folks, we only get to live this life once. Let's go out and take care of the people in our tribe. Take care of each other. God bless.